This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the REI Co-op, which is encouraging people to opt outside this holiday season, get outside, and get the people around you to do the same. And no one embodies that idea more than Jenny Brusso, the founder of Unlikely Hikers and an REI member since 2014. Unlikely Hikers is my Instagram community that I created about a year ago uh, that features the underrepresented outdoors person. Since pretty much forever, there's been not much diversity in media depictions of people going outside. But thanks to people like Jenny, that's slowly changing. I primarily feature people of color, people of size, uh, trans people, gender non-binary folks, uh, differently abled people, and so on. And I feature their stories. And that's just Jenny's day job. At night, or at least one night a month, she puts on an event called Queer Adventure Storytelling, a live show that brings together the LGBTQ community to tell stories of times they got outside their comfort zone in the outdoors and things didn't go as planned. And our goal with this event is to build community, a community of queer adventurers and you know, sort of change the, the storyline of whose adventure stories we're hearing most of the time. In other words, She's telling the people around her to go have adventures and then come talk about it because we all want to see ourselves outside. When we don't see ourselves represented in things, sometimes we decide that they aren't for us. And if you want to see yourself represented in something, sometimes you have to be the person to make that happen. You can join the movement by sharing your outdoor stories and inspirations with the hashtag OptOutside. Outside Magazine and PRX. These are dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. Maybe it's just a function of the way our brains work these days, with our phones and the internet right there all the time. But recently I've been noticing that there are a lot of stories I think I sort of know, but if I had to explain them from scratch with no Wikipedia, it would be pretty rough. Biosphere 2 is one of those stories. Back in the 90s, I remember hearing all about it and seeing pictures of what I assumed were totally hardcore scientists running a self-contained, massive experiment where they were going to lock themselves in a glass bubble in the desert for two years. I was eight years old at the time, and I remember feeling like two years was an impossibly long time to wait to find out what happened to them. Two years? That's like geologic time when you're eight years old. But it's now 24 years later, and I still don't really know what happened. I vaguely remember that they didn't make it, but I don't know why. And this week, our friends at the environmental podcast Terrestrial, from KUOW in Seattle, decided to revisit the story of Biosphere 2. And it turns out that what happened, and why the experiment failed, is probably more relevant now than it's ever been. Here's Terrestrial's host, Ashley Ahern. What if you looked at the world around you and you saw where things are headed on this planet and you said to yourself, you know what? I'm out. I want to go somewhere new. I want to start fresh. I want to live in a controlled, safe environment of my own. And I want to handpick the people I'm going to do it with. Well, back in the 90s, a group of people did something kind of like that. They were researchers and visionaries. And they built sort of a giant, really sophisticated terrarium. And they decided to shut themselves inside it for years at a time all in the name of trying to understand how all the systems that make up life on Earth fit together to protect our environment and, if needed, to bring it elsewhere, to other planets or space. They called it Biosphere 2, 
because Earth is, of course, the original biosphere. But for the purposes of this story, we'll refer to it simply as the biosphere, because as far as we know, it's the only project of its kind. Jonathan Hirsch, the producer on our show, got totally fascinated by this story, and he's been digging into what happened inside. So, Jonathan, you've got a photo of the biosphere, right? Let's send it to me. Yeah, okay, all right. I'm sending you the photo of the biosphere. And I am opening it. And it is awesome. It is like a <laughs> castle in space in the future. It's this big dome of steel and glass in the middle of the desert. <laughs> yeah, or like a castle in space on a TV show in the 1970s. You know what I mean? Exactly. But it just leaves me wondering, Jonathan, why would a bunch of people choose to live inside of this thing? And I mean this respectfully, but it's basically like a big snow globe in the desert. Yeah, well, what happened was this group of researchers, some of whom were scientists, really wanted to figure out how the whole Earth works, how all the systems on the planet fit together, which at the time was kind of a revolutionary idea. Because instead of studying each system individually, they had this idea to sort of replicate part of the Earth's biosphere in a much smaller, controlled environment and live inside. Wait, so by controlled, you mean like completely sealed off from the outside world? Yeah, exactly. Almost like a mini Earth, because they thought it would let them better study the way the real Earth works. that was just the beginning of the story because the biosphere was a lot more than a science experiment. It was also a test of how people live together under pressure. I'm Ashley Ahern, and you're listening to Terrestrial, a show that explores the choices we make in a world we've changed. Today, we're going to find out what happens when a group of researchers shut themselves in this biosphere and attempt to deeply study many of the Earth's ecosystems, from rainforest to oceans to coral reefs, all underneath a glass dome on one three-acre chunk of land in the Arizona desert. So the biosphere, which still exists today, sits in Oracle, Arizona, just outside of Tucson. The people who built it say it's the largest closed, ecologically engineered system ever made. Laser Vantillo is a mechanical engineer, and he was there for the construction in 1987. And so as you come over that hill, you would see the glistening of solar panels, uh, the staging area, which would be greenhouses. We had already built a small... Uh, biosphere if you like, you would see many cranes uh, craning in big trees as well as pieces of glass to, as we were closing because we had to bring in the trees before we actually put the full ceiling on so we left little spaces open um, and you see that myriad of activity of plumbers and electricians and uh, these integrated uh, systems people, uh, computers, uh, Hewlett-Packard was, was there on, on site installing uh, their computer systems. So it was, um, it was a hustle and bustle of people creating a new world. A new world its creators thought should contain all these elements of the world outside. Literally, ocean, farmland, savanna, rainforest pygmy goats from Nigeria, corals from the Yucatan. But underneath this new planet, instead of dirt, there was a laboratory outfitted with sensors to measure everything up above. 
nitrogen levels in the soil, oxygen levels in the atmosphere. We had uh, 200,000 gallons of fresh water that was cycled throughout the whole biosphere with rain systems that were computerized, computerized rain systems for the rainforest. The person who first came up with the idea was this guy named John Allen. Back in the 60s, Allen ran an avant-garde theater troupe, then a collective farm in New Mexico, then a ship called the Heraclitus that sailed all over the globe, and then the biosphere. According to Laser and others who worked with him, Allen was always talking about how everything on the planet was inextricably connected in ways people couldn't fully understand. He was one of those charismatic leaders with big ideas, inspired people. He used the term synergy a lot. Gay Alling first met John Allen on a flight to Sri Lanka. Gay was finishing up a dissertation from Yale on marine mammals. John Allen was traveling to meet the crew of the Heraclitus, which was docked there. Gay says his ideas resonated. But what was happening politically was, of course, the Cold War. Um, there was apartheid. There was uh, the, the wall, the German wall that came down shortly after. And Gay, like Allen, was asking big questions. We knew there was a number of people who understood that already our planet was being changed decisively and direct, directly in the wrong way, that our health support system, our biosphere, our ecology was being eroded. And that was the milieu that John came up with the idea of what we have to do is study it. And the only way you can study it as a totality is to make it into a laboratory. And once they were in Sri Lanka, Gay went to visit the ship. Laser was already on board. So to me, it was adventure. I was really into exploration. Growing up in Belgium, he'd been involved in the environmental movement. Then, as a young man, he hitchhiked from New York to Panama, And in Panama, he became fascinated by how different ecosystems were connected to one another. After hearing about Alan's project, he tracked down the ship in the South Pacific. Then Gay decided to come on board in Sri Lanka. Less than two years later, in Arizona, construction started on the biosphere. Three acres of land enclosed in a glass dome. And for me, it was a perfect fit when I... When I heard about the biosphere. And in March 1991, Gay, Laser, and six other people took on Alan's biggest project yet. Two years sealed inside the biosphere. By this point, Alan had raised tens of millions of dollars. The project was a joint venture between Alan's team and Texas billionaire Edward Bass. The crew hosted a press conference all eight of them in matching red jumpsuits. They looked like astronauts or ghostbusters. They smiled, waved, cameras flashed, and then one by one, they entered the biosphere. Well, as we closed the door through the airlock, what went through my mind was, I hope I did not forget any spare parts i was in i was in charge. Wallet. <laughs> yeah yeah i was in charge of, of the technosphere and um so that was went through my mind um uh yeah then day one suddenly you know it dawned on me we're in here and the, the two years are starting and the enormity of that historic moment um was just like ringing throughout my my body it was palpable 
And I felt we had, we were totally prepared. Which is different, Gay says, than having everything under control. If we had known all about our biosphere, building Biosphere 2 would have been really easy. We didn't know. And we didn't know, as we walked in the door, how a biosphere works. We still don't really know. During those first two weeks, Abigail and Laser said life on the inside was exciting and tremendously challenging to keep all those ecosystems going and stay alive yourself. Feeding eight crew members with what you could grow with zero help from the outside wasn't easy. If I opened my refrigerator at home before at Biosphere 2, it'd be full with all kinds of goodies. When we opened it at inside bias here too there would be hardly anything in there except what we harvested that day and so it was more you know directly from harvest to our kitchen and we would we would uh, cook it and, and eat it which of course might not sound so crazy today you've got the local food movement foraging but they weren't just going local and harvesting all their own food they were doing it while living on three acres inside a glass dome on top of that The whole project was based on the premise that the diversity of all these different ecosystems could somehow be contained and studied under that dome. In other words, it involved a huge leap of faith and also some hubris. But it wasn't long before all those ideas started to be challenged. One major challenge was the um, oxygen start dropping. So at a certain point, oxygen level was at 14.2%. And... um, it sounds really low, but that I'm is not. slow. Yeah, and so the planet is twenty-one percent. Solving the oxygen issue became critical, and within days, the crew split into two camps: those who wanted to keep the biosphere locked for two years, no matter what, and those that didn't, because they were worried people might get hurt. Eventually, the team decided to bring in a truck that would pump oxygen into the biosphere. But this was this why Biosphere Two should have really stayed closed for a hundred years to get us. Ecology is always long-term. A tree, you know, a healthy tree takes 30, 40 years to grow. So we were in infancy with biosphere, where all the elements, all the trace elements uh, would end up, say, in the rivers, in the soil. This was all long-term. This was just the first, this, our first two years was a shakedown mission. Our coffee trees were so small that uh, we only had 24 cups of coffees for each of us once a month. So all these things... Uh, oh, that sounds was in there. That sounds like a recipe for disaster in my house. <laughs> yes. For Gay and Laser, the importance of their work was clear. When the first two-year mission was over, they still felt the challenges they faced inside the biosphere could help find solutions to all the problems outside on Earth. And in the end, Gay says, it wasn't isolation that brought the project to a halt. It was shut down by power and money. It was shut down by guns. It was shut down by a takeover that um, destroyed it. Pascal Maslin was 22 years old when she boarded the Heraclitus. It was an incredible life. You, I was on the boat for four years during the training period. In total, I've spent eight years on this ship. During their time on the Heraclitus, Laser and Pascal became close. Pascal says that after Laser finished the first biosphere mission, he recommended her to be his replacement on the next one, as the person in charge of technical systems. 
One day, John Allen called Pascal into his office to talk, and... He said, you're in, kiddo. She'd been preparing for years for this opportunity and was thrilled. Mission 2 was the Biospherian's chance to build off of the successes and failures of the first mission. But she was also concerned. The pressure was on. Ed Bass, the main backer of the project, had hoped that the work inside the biosphere would help generate profits the way innovations made during space missions, like solar panels, had helped fund NASA projects. After all, millions of dollars had been invested. Then there was the fact that people from the first mission, like Laser and Gay, would be managing those in the second mission. So between that and all the money invested, there was increasing pressure to show the biosphere was a success. And even before she went in, Pascal felt like the project had changed. And in the first mission, there was a lot of individual attention, um, you know, where people were personified, look at the biospherians, whereas in the second mission, it wasn't like that at all. We were, you know, we were like bus drivers, uh, you know, going in there to drive the bus under the um, auspices of the first mission people. Also, some of the problems from the first mission hadn't been fixed. Take food. The crew subsisted on a yield from that same small plot of land, which still wasn't producing much. Yeah, probably 12-hour days, seven days a week, and um, and exhausted, and not enough food, and uh, not enough of the food that I like, and, <laughs> you know, I mean, and you were working hard all day. I mean, there were times when you're standing at the bottom of the stairs, and you knew there was a cup full of peanuts waiting for you in the kitchen, and did you, was it really worth the energy to climb up those stairs and get that cup full of peanuts? But the crew inside, says Pascal, figured, okay, these are just challenges, just like with the first mission. Then came Easter weekend. At first I thought it was an April Fool's joke. Because it was a holiday, most of the management had left town. One morning, the crew inside the biosphere had finished breakfast when they received a video call. It was the two consultants Bass had recently hired to audit the biosphere budget. Martin Bowen and another consultant, a guy named Steve Bannon, we got called into mission control and there was this v-shaped table with a camera on us and a big television screen and so we were sitting there in front of martin bowen and steve bannon and everybody saying that they had taken over the biosphere and the old management team had been removed and they were in control now yeah steve bannon the same steve bannon who would later run breitbart news and serve as an advisor to President Donald Trump. According to Ed Bass, the Biospherians were chronically over budget. And the kinds of innovations that would make the Biosphere a good investment, they weren't happening fast enough. So we brought on Bowen and Bannon. There was radio silence. Yeah, I was uh, shocked, confused, thought, oh, this is a mistake. This is a j-. In the beginning, I thought it was a joke. Bass had also asked a Texas district court judge to approve a temporary restraining order against several members of the management, which was granted. So around the time of that first video call from Mission Control to the Biosphere, armed federal marshals and local police arrived at the compound to enforce the restraining order. Later, Steve Bannon and Martin Bowen met again with crew members via another video call. Pascal says they were told there had been questionable financial dealings among management accusations that were never prosecuted. They were also told the mission would continue as planned. I thought that, you know, all this was going to go to court 
and it was all going to be resolved and these people were going to get back in their positions and everything was going to, you know, go on pretty much as normal. You know, a few of the key positions in the top might change, but overall, you you know, I mean, who else knew how to run a biosphere? And it seemed to me that the aim of this takeover was to take the biosphere off the people that built it and and to stop the bot to close the biosphere down and that's exactly what they did by this point over 200 million dollars had been invested in the project it hadn't yielded any profit for its investors but the old management wasn't ready to give up Gay, Laser, and John Allen were in Japan when this all happened. John Allen's memoir, he describes collapsing to the ground in tears of grief when he heard the news. As for Gay and Laser, they got on a plane to Arizona and arrived shortly after the takeover. According to Pascal, they parked their car off-site and hiked through the desert, reaching the biosphere through back roads. And then they came into the biosphere that they opened all the doors and then the lungs are set up. The lungs were a mechanized system that controlled air pressure. When it got hot, the lungs expanded. When it got cold, the lungs contracted. And if the lungs expanded too far, if it got too hot, the lungs would tighten and activate a hammer which would break the glass. Basically, it was a big stop button. So Laser went in there and pulled that chain and broke the glass. So he ended the experiment is what happened. At this point, it was about 4 a.m., and Pascal says Laser calls her on the phone. And he said, wake up the other biospherians, have breakfast, and come out of the biosphere. Um, this, oh, this is Laser Vantillo. I'm your supervisor. Um, have breakfast, come out of the biosphere. And so he hung up. So we all came running out, banging on people's doors. Um, everyone came out in their pajamas or whatever. And... Um, And sure enough, the doors were wide open. But Pascal wasn't ready to leave. After all, she'd been waiting years to be there. Picked up the phone, I called up uh, the guard, somebody manning the phones at the entrance to the biosphere. I called them up and asked for uh, Martin Bowen. I got, and I told Martin, you know, they've broken, gain laser, are on site, they've broken up the, they've broken into the biosphere. Um, Please come down and close the doors. And um, I know, I think I was pretty hysterical. I said things like, I'm on your side now, and all kinds of, and, you know, I was hysterical. <laughs> Did anybody leave? No. Everybody stayed when they tried to do that? Yeah. Laser says he does not remember that conversation with Pascal. And both he and Gay say they were following guidelines established at the project's outset, which stipulated that any time there was a major change, everyone involved needed to agree to it. Both Gay and Laser say they were not trying to influence the decision of the crew members inside. Criminal charges were filed against Gay and Laser for damages that resulted from breaking the glass. Pascal says the charges were exaggerated. You know, they tried to point to millions of dollars worth of damage. You know, it was a 12-inch piece of, 12-inch diameter round piece of glass. I mean, you could go to Stroschneider's and get it for $6 today. I mean, that that's the amount of physical damage that they did. Everyone I spoke to for this story was hesitant to comment on Steve Bannon's involvement in the project. But I did talk to Pascal about where Bannon ended up years later, going from managing the biosphere 
to playing a critical role in the first year of the Trump presidency. He's a master of hostile takeovers, isn't he? Um, and, you know, at least at the beginning of this administration, it looked like he was orchestrating it. So, the, you know, are we having a hostile takeover? Some people that would say that we are. Bannon is, of course, no longer a part of the Trump administration. And shortly after leaving, he told Bloomberg News that he was, quote, going to war for Trump against his opponents on Capitol Hill, in the media, and in corporate America, end quote. And again, just to be clear, Bannon was brought on as the interim CEO of the Biosphere by Ed Bass. As for the Biosphere, after several more months, the second mission was terminated. That was, um, yeah, I just couldn't believe it. Eventually, the facility was sold to Columbia University, who later sold it to the University of Arizona, made it open to the public. Large doors were installed for visitors to take Biosphere tours. There's a gift shop with Biosphere t-shirts, Biosphere postcards, Biosphere toys. The university uses the facility for research, but the living quarters where Gay, Laser, and Pascal once lived are empty. I talked to crew members from both Biosphere missions. Gay and Laser now study and restore coral reefs as a measure against the effects of climate change. Pascal runs an energy auditing business. Two others, Jane Pointer and Tabor McCallum, helped found a company that creates technologies that allow humans to survive in extreme conditions, like underwater or outer space. No matter what mission a person was part of, Most kept on exploring the limits of how we humans interact with the Earth. But during their time in the biosphere, they got not only to witness all these ecosystems shifting right before their eyes, but for a little while, a year or two max, they had control over the world around them. Or maybe just the illusion of it. That's Jonathan Hirsch. He produced and sound designed this whole episode. If his name sounds familiar, he does a lot of the music for our podcast and is generally a friend of the show. This piece was edited by Annie Aviles. Thanks to the whole team at Terrestrial for making this happen. This episode was brought to you by the REI Co-op, which reminds you to opt outside this holiday season. Just go outside. It's great. The Outside Podcast is a production of PRX and Outside Magazine. We'll be back next week with another Science of Survival.